Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to teach the Bible today. I pray for the little ones. Uh, I pray, Lord God, that they would know that they are loved and welcome here, and we thank you for their voices in the room. Lord, I thank you for an opportunity to teach the Bible today as we go through 1 John and look at the Father heart of God. And Lord, pray for our understanding and hearing, and pray for my teaching as I love these people and have the great joy of opening your word with them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's start right here. Every time there's something wonderful, cool, amazing, valuable, it immediately gets counterfeited, amen? There's knockoffs, there's ripoffs, there's, there's fakes, there's forgeries, there's phonies. So let's just think this through. What are the things that get fake? They get forged, they get, um, they get copied, they get mimicked, they get counterfeited. What things come to mind? Money, everybody's trying to figure out how to counterfeit money. Automobiles, knockoffs, ripoffs, fake parts, bad service, taken advantage of. Ladies, handbags, purses, right? If you went to the swap meet and you got a really good deal on a high-end purse, I'll tell you right now, probably wasn't a high-end purse, right? How about shoes? Do people fake and forge shoes? Knockoffs, ripoffs, yes. These things happen all the time. How about antiques? Do people fake and mimic antiques and treasured items? Yes. How about sports and rock and roll memorabilia? Do they falsify the signatures? Yes, they do. How many of you watch those reality television shows where they bring something in, an antique, something that's of value, something that's got a signature, and somebody wants to sell it, what do they need to do to determine its authenticity? They bring in the expert. Let me call my friend, they're an expert in X, Y, or Z, I'll bring them in and then they'll look at this and they'll verify whether it's real or a counterfeit. What we have today in 1 John chapter two is counterfeit Christianity. Christianity at this point has been going for two or three generations. It's been about 50, 60, 70 years since Jesus walked on the earth. Now you're into second and third generation Christians and what you're starting to get is counterfeit Christianity. People are saying they're Christians, but they're not. They're taking some of the beliefs of Christianity, they're subtracting to, uh, from them rather, adding to them. And the result is you're getting a lot of fakes and forgeries and you're getting a lot of counterfeits and cults. And so there's a big debate that's apparently raging in the church over what is real Christianity versus counterfeit Christianity. So then they call in the proverbial expert. Who's the expert? John. Like, who are we gonna call? Let's call John, why? Right, well, because he was with Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was Jesus' best friend, the one whom Jesus loved. He was there for everything that Jesus said and did. 
All the other disciples are dead. He's now an old man between 80 and 100 years of age. He's the highest living spiritual authority on the earth. Let's call in John. And let's let John look at these claims and these counterfeits and determine whether or not they're authentic. And so that's where we find ourselves today, that there is real Christianity, there is counterfeit Christianity, and John is the expert who weighs in to distinguish between the two. And he's gonna talk about four things. If you're a note taker, he's gonna talk about real relationships, real anointing, the real Jesus and real perseverance. We'll start with real relationships in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. He says, children, okay, I want you to hear this. He's an old guy. He's between 80 and 100 years of age. He's like, hey, kids, he's got this father's heart and that's the father's heart of God, okay? So I need everyone here to understand that God is your father and he loves you. And if you're a Christian, his father's heart is that he sees you as his child. He loves you, he cares for you. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you still need God to be your dad. And we need the leaders in this you know, young church plant that we're a part of, starting with me, to have a father's heart to where we love out of the same place that we love our kids. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist, right? we get a Scooby-Doo word real quick there, kind of a scary word, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. He's talking about this group of people and this alternative Christianity that ultimately is a counterfeit Christianity. He says, they, this particular group, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. He starts with the when, he says, this is the last hour. Now, let me say this, that, that God tends to see history in terms of epochal events, epochs of time. We tend to think in terms of seconds and minutes and days and weeks and months and years. And God tends to think in terms of events. So for the God of the Bible, Adam and Eve sin, the promise is made, Jesus is coming. So the next big event is the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he rises. Those are the biggest events in human history. Jesus then ascends back into heaven. And John, the author of this book, he was there to see Jesus go back up into heaven. And the next big event is what? the second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead and to set up the eternal kingdom of God. So, so the last hour is waiting for the last event, the last big event in human history. We don't know when Jesus is gonna come back. I always say we're on the planning, not on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee. I don't know when he's gonna show up, but when he does, I'm gonna blow up a balloon. You know, that's, that's kind of my position on everything. I'm excited for Jesus to come back. When he comes back, that'll be the best day ever, but we don't know when that will be. Jesus says that no one knows the hour nor the day and people like to speculate. What the Bible does tell us is that we're in the last hour. It'll use the language elsewhere, the last days, that we're waiting for the last event in human history and that's the second coming and the eternal judgment from Jesus Christ. That's the when. The who, he talks about the antichrist and the antichrist. And when you're talking anti, that can be against or in place of, and both might be in view here. So to be against Christ means you're against Jesus. You oppose Jesus. You don't like the real Jesus. And also in place of Jesus, that someone or something becomes the center. So let me say this about Christianity. Christianity is not rooted in a place, it's rooted in a person. A lot of religions are rooted in a place, so you go to a place to meet with God. Christianity is rooted in a person, so you meet a person to have a relationship with God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so for the Christian, Jesus is not at the top of our priority list, he's at the center of our life. 
right? If he was on the top of your priority list, you're like, well, I met with Jesus. Now I do my job or my relationship or my finances or my family or my hobbies. And no, the issue is Jesus is at the center. Jesus is Lord over your spirituality. He's Lord over your relationships. He's Lord over your marriage. He's Lord over your business. He's Lord over your finances. That everything is connected to Jesus and everything is ruled over by Jesus. And Jesus just isn't a priority on our list. He's at the center of our life. To be antichrist is trying to push Jesus from that position. That something or someone is trying to push Jesus and as a result, replace Jesus with someone or something else. That's what it means to be anti against in place of Christ. And he talks about one individual called the antichrist. And I believe that this is probably someone who is working by the power of Satan, one incredibly powerful individual that perhaps brings together spiritual, financial, political, capital to rule from a very powerful position and to bring in a formal opposition to God and his kingdom. And then he talks about antichrist. And these are people that are working by demonic, dark power, and they are opposing the forward progress of Christ and Christianity. So anywhere you see real strong opposition to Jesus and to, and to Christianity, then you know that something demonic is happening. And behind that, there are antichrists, there are fallen beings, there are demons, there are unholy angels that are working, sometimes through political systems, through individual leaders, and they're working against the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus. So their goal is that less people would know Jesus, less people would love Jesus, less people would serve Jesus. That's antichrist, that's against Christ. That's pushing aside and seeking to replace the person and work of Jesus as priority and central. Well, if you think of the Antichrist, you're thinking like Mao, Lenin, Hitler, certain leaders in the history of the world that have come to extraordinary power and done great damage. The Antichrist is a figure that supersedes them all at some point. The Antichrist are any number of people that are working against the cause of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is that there is opposition to Christianity in the world. And so it leaves and raises this particular question that is the point to which John is speaking today. And that is, what about the people who are claiming to be Christians and they're in community with the Christians and then they turn against the Christians and they walk away from Christ and Christianity, but they still claim to be Christians. Who are they? What team are they on? What group are they in? Are they pro-Christ? Are they anti-Christ? Are they for him or are they against him? And what do we do with them? Because some of them are our friends. Some of them are our relatives. Some of them, that, that's our mom. That was our daughter. These are people that we know. We went to school with them. We were in a small group with them. We had a relationship with them. In what category do we put them? Or are they in the category of the Antichrist? So this is, this is a bit of a crisis in the local churches to which John is writing. And he's, he's trying to unpack this for people and for you to emotionally engage with this. I want you to think of somebody who said they were a Christian you thought they were a Christian, and now you're not sure, or you're sure that they probably are not. And as a result, you're wondering what happened to them and what category are they in and what relationship should I have with them? And are they a Christian or not a Christian or what is happening? That's the, that's the issue here. And sometimes the issue will get asked in this way. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Okay. These were people with Christ and Christianity, and now they're not. And some people would ask, well, you know, can a Christian lose their salvation? I don't even like that question. Here's a better question. Can God lose a Christian? See, that's a better question. If I earn my salvation, then I can unearn it. 
If I earn it, then I can lose it. If I own it, I can lose it. If God's the one who saves me, which is what the Bible teaches, and he saves me by pure grace and it's undeserved, or in fact, it's ill-deserved, then I can't lose what's not mine. I can't unearn what I've not earned. I can't disqualify myself for something that I didn't qualify for in the first place. That if Jesus died for all my sins and God chose to save me and forgive me and give me his spirit and the righteousness of his son, then I can't lose my salvation because the point is that God doesn't lose a Christian. You see the difference? And this is where Jesus says, no one can snatch you from my hand. This is where Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In the same way, if you give me one of my kids when they're a little baby and I'm holding them and loving them, uh, I will secure them and I will protect them and I will love them and I will keep them from harm and I will make sure that they are safe. God's a father, we're his kids. When you get born again, the question is not, can a kid squirrel their way out of their dad's arms? The question is, is dad gonna let go of one of his kids? And the answer is no, God's not a dad who lets go of his kids. He holds his kids, he cherishes his kids, he protects his kids. So what happens to these people? Well, let me say this, it raises a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And I don't wanna get too far down the road, but the point is that a real Christian perseveres. They keep walking with Jesus. And there are times though that Christians will have moments or even extended periods where they're not walking with Jesus faithfully. During those periods, so when someone says, I love Jesus, I'm walking with Jesus, I'm walking with Jesus' people, you go, well, seems like they're a Christian. When they say, well, they they said they were a Christian and they walked with Jesus for a while, but now they're not walking with Jesus anymore. So are they a Christian? Are they a non-Christian? What happened? Let me say this, you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. You can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. And that's the story of one of Jesus' own disciples, a guy named Judas Iscariot, you remember? He's with Jesus for three years. He's following Jesus. He's learning from Jesus, right? When they pray, he's praying. When they sing, he's singing. When they're serving, he's serving. If you just looked at it, you say, well, there's 12 guys with Jesus. I, I think that's his team. Now, Judas was not someone who loved Jesus and then stopped loving Jesus, was following Jesus, then stopped following Jesus. The Bible tells us that actually for the duration of Jesus' ministry, he was the bookkeeper and he was stealing the whole time. You know what that means? He didn't lose his salvation, he faked it. He was hanging out with Christ and Christians, but in his heart, he didn't really have a love and a devotion to Jesus. And so what John is going to get at is that the true Christians will walk with Jesus. And if they walk away from Jesus, they'll walk back to Jesus and his people and his people. Um, There's another story of the 12 disciples. It's a guy named Peter. He's an interesting case study with Judas. Judas walked with Jesus but he didn't really love Jesus in his heart and then walked away and betrayed Jesus and then killed himself and never reconciled with Jesus or with the disciples, Jesus' people. And John was there for that. The author of this book was participating. So then there's this other guy, Peter. He's a bit impetuous, a bit of a loud mouth. And at one point he actually denies Jesus. But he then met with Jesus and there was repentance and there was reconciliation and he came back to Jesus and he came back to Jesus' people. Right? We're all gonna have moments where we're like Peter. We're all gonna have moments when we're like, I said, ah, I wasn't walking with Jesus there. That was a, a moment or maybe that was a season where I was not walking with Jesus faithfully. Does that mean you lost your salvation? No, because the true Christian comes back. The true Christian either continues with God and his people 
or if they stray, they return. Let me give you a case study. Let's say there's a young woman, grows up in a Christian family. She says she loves Jesus. You know, she's been in Bible studies in church and she seems to have a love for the Lord and then she meets a bad guy, all right? I know this is hypothetical, never happens, but hypothetically, she meets a bad guy. She meets a bad guy, she starts dating the bad guy and the bad guy is not a Christian. So she decides, I'm not gonna go to church anymore. I'm not gonna go to Bible study anymore. I'm not gonna do those things anymore because now the boy and not Jesus is the center of my life and I need everything to rotate around him, not around Jesus. And since he's not with Jesus, uh, I'm gonna choose him over Jesus. Now let's say this continues for the rest of her life. We're not in the position to judge. None of us is gonna die and give an account to me or a mirror. We'll all give an account to Jesus, but we can look at that and say, doesn't seem like a Christian because she just walked away from Jesus and never came back. That was more like what Judas did than what Peter did. If at some point she says, gosh, that was wrong. I feel bad about that. She apologizes to Jesus, repents, reconciles, goes back to her Bible study, goes back to her Christian friend, starts praying and reading God's word. We could say, yeah, you were a Christian with a season of rebellion. And there's consequence for that because sin does cause problems and pain, but you were a Christian and we know that because you returned to God and his people. So we had this discussion at the dinner table, Grace and I did with the kids and they were, they were asking like, what happens to somebody who walks away? And the question is, well, give it some time, love them, pray for them, pursue them and see if they come back. If they walk away, did they come back? And some of you, your stories you've told me are like, I was walking with Jesus and then, wow, I didn't do that. And I made a wreck of my whole life and now I've come back to Jesus. Okay, okay, well, were you a Christian then? or? Here's the point. Christians walk with Jesus and Christians walk with Jesus together. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. And so you give it some time. Now, one other thing I wanna hit with this, this is the difference between what theologians will call the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is the church that, as we see it. So if you say, well, who are the Christians? Well, you'd say, well, probably the best thing we can do is go into the churches and look around and see the people and say, well, those are the Christians. Now, the invisible church, is the church as God sees it, right? The Bible says that the Lord knows those are who are his. So true or false in every church, there are non-Christians, totally true. Now, how about people that aren't in church today? Are there Christians that aren't in church today? Yeah. So what we see as the visible church is not exactly what God sees as the invisible church. God says, well, there's people in church that don't know me yet. And there are people that do know me that aren't in church. They're not in community with God's people. And so Jesus uses this parable of the weed and the tares, and it's like you're growing a garden and you've got you know, your plants and your weeds and they're all growing up together. And you're trying to pick all your weeds out of your garden, but there's certain ones that are just sprouting. You're like, I don't, know if that's, I don't know if that's a plant or a weed. And if you're a gardener like me, you really don't know, right? You just don't have any of those skills. You really say, I don't know if that's a plant or a weed. If it's a weed, I wanna pull it up. But if it's a plant, I don't wanna pull it up. And what happens sometimes in the church, everybody tries to figure out who the real Christians are and who the non-Christians are and try to get everybody situated and everything clean and organized. And what Jesus says is, don't do that. Don't do that because God knows whether they're a real Christian or not a Christian or gonna become a Christian. So wait till the end, wait for Jesus to return and let him say, here are the Christians, here are the non-Christians. Let him sort of pull all the weeds out of the proverbial garden. 
And so that's what's going on here. In the church, there are Christians and non-Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we love you. We're glad to have you. We want you to meet Jesus. You are absolutely welcome in every way. And we'd love to answer any questions for you and pray with you. But there are some people that have proven themselves in the middle of garden of this garden of the church to really be weeds. They don't love Jesus. They don't love Jesus' people. And what they're starting to do is they're starting to overtake the garden and they're starting to choke out all of the healthy plants that would be fruitful, to use that analogy. And that's the problem that's going on here. Um, and so let me say this. What he's talking about here is basically Christianity versus cults. Other world religions don't claim to be Christian. You go to a Muslim, you go to somebody who's into Baha'i or Confucianism or Taoism, you say, are you a Christian? They will say, no, no I'm not a Christian. Okay, do you, is Jesus your God? No, okay. So other religions are not pretending to be Christians. What he's talking about here is basically the beginning of what we would call the cults. The cults are people who, they started within Christianity, they started within the church, and then their doctrinal convictions changed so much that they were no longer true to the Bible and they were no longer true to Jesus and they created a counterfeit. They've got a forgery, they've got a fake, but they'll still use some of the language of Christianity because the whole point is deception. Just like somebody who's trying to make a knockoff, a ripoff, a counterfeit, they want it to look as real as possible so that more people will, will agree to it or subscribe to it or purchase it or adhere to it. And that's what's going on here. So in our day, this would be the equivalent, and, and what I say is gonna be offensive, um, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. If you, if you have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and they knock, I'm with the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. If you ask them, are you guys Christians? They will say, yes. Do you worship Jesus? They will say, yes. And they, and they started as a group within Christianity, but they have walked away from Christ and Christianity. They're no longer Christian, they're a cult. Mormons, same thing, some nice people, nice neighbors, nice kids. We're not talking about uh, people that are unpleasant. Um, we're, we're talking about people that are just wrong, okay? And I know it's offensive to say that, but it's, it's better to offend someone and, and let them meet the real Jesus than not offend someone and then let them meet the real Jesus, okay? So that being said, let's say a Mormon knocks on your door, nice kid from their mission. Again, this is all hypothetical. You know, it doesn't happen here in the valley, but let's say uh, a Mormon kid knocks on your door and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about spiritual things. You ask them, are you guys Christians? They will say, yes. Do you guys worship Jesus? They will say, yes. And they started within Christianity and they have left Christianity, but they'll still claim to be Christians because the goal is to help Christians uh, or rather recruit Christians uh, to join them, to walk away from Christian churches and walk into their religious structures. That's exactly what's happening here. He says they were with us, but they weren't with us because they walked away from us. They turned their back on us. They never came back to us. And what they believe is different than us. So this is the beginning of cults. This is the beginning of cults and cults are counterfeits. And sometimes they'll even use the same language of Christianity, but they'll have different meaning. I was talking to somebody from a cult not long ago. I said, do you guys believe in the Trinity? Yes, we do. Okay, what is the Trinity? They said, faith, hope, and love. Ah, no, no, no. God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. We gotta define our terms here. I was talking to uh, someone recently that's a Mormon. Said, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe he's the only God, eternal God, the creator God? No, we believe he's a created being that 
God the Father had a relationship with Mary. They gave birth to Jesus. He became, he's a man who became God. Men can become gods, but he got this planet. And if we follow in his example, we can become gods and get our own planet. That's not the same thing that Christians believe. They'd say his half-brother's Lucifer. That's, that, that's, that's not how we put the org chart together. That's not how we do it, okay? Uh, if you ask the Jehovah's Witness, well, who is Jesus? They will say, well, he's the archangel Michael. He's a created being and he's not the creator God. Well, that's different. So it's not just asking, are you a Christian or do you believe in Jesus? It's then asking, who is your Jesus? Okay, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But let me, by way of brief excursus, let me clarify this because what we're not talking about here is different kinds of Christians. We're talking about Christians and non-Christians. So let's say somebody's in an Assemblies of God church and they decide to go to a Baptist church. Is that what he's talking about? Yes or no? No, you can't go, they were among us, they went out from us and now they're Baptists. So we all know that they're reprobate and gonna burn forever because that's what Baptists do. You know, you can't, you can't, we're not talking about different denominations, different traditions. We're not talking about different Christian convictions on secondary issues, we're talking about primary issues, okay? And all Christians do believe on a set of primary closed-handed issues, and then we disagree on a secondary set of open-handed issues. So in the closed hand, I would say the Bible is God's word. There's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, lived without sin, died on the cross for our sins, rose from death, conquering Satan's sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God, and that the only way to eternal life is to repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And all Christians would say? Amen. Not loud enough, but you said it. Thank Amen. you for doing that. Okay, uh, so all Christians would say? Amen. Okay, now you go over here. You go, should we homeschool, private school, public school our kids? Should we speak in tongues, not speak in tongues? Should we have an organ, a praise band, no instruments? Should we sing hymns, contemporary music? Should we raise our hands all the way? Should we keep them in our pockets? Should we put them halfway up? What should we do? Secondary issues, okay? So Christians actually have a great deal of unity around primary and we have differences, not divisions around secondary. Let me give you an analogy. We're in the United States of America, we now live in the great state of Arizona and for spring break, my kids wanted to go to what state would you assume that children would want to go to for spring break? California. So, uh, cause every kid thinks California is as close to heaven as you can get. When my kids were little, I explained heaven. It's always sunny. It's always fun. Jesus is there. It's a good time. One of my kids said, so it's like dying and going to California. I said, yeah, okay, it's like that. So we got in the family suburban and we drove to California and we crossed state boundaries and borders, and we just drove right through them. Why? Because we're still one country. Okay. Now, if we were to go into Mexico, we would have to pass an entirely different kind of border, amen? You gotta stop, you gotta answer questions, maybe show your identification. There's a difference between state borders and national borders. Um, state borders are distinctions, but you can travel freely. National borders are divisions, and they clearly demarcate nations. That being said, what's happening here is not a disagreement among secondary state issues. So think of the United States of America, like here's the Presbyterians, here's the Baptists, here's the Pentecostals, here's the Charismatics, here's the Assemblies of God, here's the Methodists, here's the Lutherans, whatever, okay, all different states. Now there's distinctions, there's uniqueness among those groups, but they're all the same nation, okay? Once you deny the Bible, once you deny 
one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. Once you deny human sinfulness, once you deny the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, once you deny the repentance of sin for salvation, you've just crossed not a state boundary, but a national boundary. Now you're not just a different kind of Christian, you're a non-Christian. You get the difference? And this is really important. Some of you are young, some of you are new Christians. I hope, I trust, I pray that here at the Trinity Church, a lot of people become Christians and they're gonna ask these questions. Well, what about those people? They love Jesus, they believe the Bible, they're Christians. We disagree with them, but we love them and we do life with them and we pray for them and they pray for us. And what we hold in common is incredibly important and unifying. And what we disagree about is secondary. And that's okay, because every family has things that they disagree about, but they're still a family. That being said, one of my hopes and prayers here in the Valley is to be a point of unity, not division. I've met with over 70 pastors. There's some loving, godly, wonderful pastors and churches here. They're all different um, states represented theologically and tribally. But at the end of the day, if they believe the Bible, they love Jesus, we love them. We wanna do life together. We wanna be the family of God that has distinctions without divisions. Because here's the big idea at the Trinity Church, our home, our, our theology rather is a home, not a prison. You know the difference between a home and a prison? You live in both, but you can't leave a prison. So for us, I have theological convictions. You will learn them as I have the honor of teaching you. But our beliefs are not a prison. A prison is where you can only listen to these teachers that only went to these schools and you can only read these books that only come from these publishers. And there's this sort of lockdown. You can't meet anyone or know anyone or learn from anyone or have friendship with anyone or talk with anyone who's a different kind of Christian. And my point is, no, we're a family. And, and the Bible is very clear on loving one another. And the same guy who's teaching this 40 times in five chapters talks about love and God's people loving one another. And if our theology is a home and not a prison, you say, well, I know some Christians who love Jesus and I disagree with them, but we're friends and we pray together. Sometimes we'll open the Bible and get a cup of coffee and we'll argue and debate and kick it around and see if we can't convince one another. And that's all perfectly well, fine and good if it's all under the auspices of love. And that's what John is really driving toward in the book. He wants all the Christians to love one another, all of the states to care for one another, but he's also saying there are certain borders that when you cross, you're not a Christian anymore. And some of these people, they have crossed those borders and boundaries. They have left Christianity and now they're into some sort of cult, some sort of false religion. They're teaching some things that are just in fact not true, not just on open-handed secondary issues, but on closed-handed primary issues particularly the person and work of Jesus, which is his next point. So real Christians have real relationships with other Christians. That's who wants you to love and serve all of God's people and be a person of peace and love. And if you disagree with someone in the context of loving relationship, have a loving biblical-based discussion to see if maybe you can't mutually learn from one another. Um, but he talks about real relationships and then he talks about a real anointing. First uh, John chapter Two, verse 20 and 21, but you have been anointed. Who's he talking about there? The Holy Spirit. He's talking about you, right? if you're a Christian. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When you hear anointing in the Old Testament, they would take olive oil and they'd put it on a sacred object or a sacred person like a priest or a king. And it was showing and denoting that they were set aside for holy special use, that they belonged to the Lord and they were gonna be used for the Lord's purposes. And so when the Bible says that we're anointed, that's the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit that we've been sealed and set apart and marked as God's servants and we belong to the Lord. 
Uh, you've been anointed by the Holy One. I believe that's the Holy Spirit and all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Now here's what's happening with those who were hanging out with the Christians, turn their back on the Christians and all of a sudden they start believing new things. So they got their own conferences, their own books, some guy in a deep V-necks denying the resurrection, like he's trending on Twitter. It's just becoming a big thing. There's this big controversy blowing up. And what these people are saying is our teachers, our gurus, our experts, our movement leaders, our authors, they have secret knowledge from God. God tells them things that he doesn't tell anyone else. You've got your Bible, but we've got the holy anointed guru, spirit leader, the, pe the person who has a direct line to God and God tells them things that he's never told anyone else. And so if you really wanna be in on what's fresh, if you really wanna be in on what's new, if you really wanna be on what's true, follow them, listen to them, put your Bible down and pick up whatever their latest book is. True or false, this still happens. All the time, all the time. And what John says is, you don't need a guru, you need the Holy Spirit. You don't need a guru, you need the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know what? You all have the, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. So you go, I don't, I don't need a guru, I got God. You know, you know what's better than guru? God. If you wanna know what God thinks, don't ask the guru, ask God. God knows what he thinks. And he's saying that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. And you all have knowledge. He says, you know what? And the Holy Spirit's happy to teach all God's kids. It's not like God is saying, I'll teach these kids, not these kids, because these are the special kids and these are the neglected kids. God's not a father like that. He loves all his kids. My kids, I'll teach any of my kids. Anything they want to talk about, that's great with me. I love all my kids. I don't say, okay, we're going to do a Bible study now. Two of you go in the other room. Why, dad? You're not allowed to learn. That's how we do it in this family. But your brother, he's going to be the guru one. We're going to get him a big hat and take his photo and put it on the internet. If you have any questions, ask him after you tithe. You know, we're not gonna do it like that in the Bible study at my house. All the kids sit down, I'm a dad, love all the kids, happy to teach all the kids. God's a dad, loves all the kids, anointed all of his people, the Holy Spirit, happy to teach them all so they can all have knowledge. There's not first class and second class Christians. There's God's children who all receive the Holy Spirit. God's not a father who plays favorites. He loves all of his kids. This doesn't mean that he doesn't give some kids the gift of knowledge or discernment or wisdom or teaching. He does. And he gives other kids different gifts like hospitality or mercy or encouragement. But it means that God equally anoints, he equally loves, he equally cares for, he equally instructs all of his kids. And there's not one super special kid who knows things that God wouldn't tell the rest of us. That's not the way that God the Father works. So when it comes to how to receive this anointing and have knowledge and to know the truth and not be deceived by the lie. He's talking about the person, the presence, the power, the ministry of the third member of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit here. Love the Holy Spirit. Say, so how do you come to the truth? Through the Holy Spirit. How do you grow in knowledge? Through the Holy Spirit, through the anointing of the Holy One. Um, and let me say, there are three primary ways that this happens. Number one, through the Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote a book. All scripture is God breathed and profitable. So the first thing you say, I wanna learn from God, read his word. And I would just beg you, read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible, pray through the Bible, right? Know your Bible. If you wanna hear from God, the easiest, quickest way to do that is to read God's word, amen? 
So we'll be a Bible-believing, Bible-studying, Bible-memorizing church. Uh, the second way that the Holy Spirit <clears throat> teaches us is through teachers. Okay? What John is doing here, he's teaching. It's amazing. People would go to this verse and they'd say, here he's saying we don't need teachers. He's teaching us we don't need teachers is what you're saying. Might I just point out, that doesn't make a lot of sense. John is a teacher who is teaching. So God will work through his word and he'll give some people the spiritual gift of teaching and they will help clarify God's word for the rest of us. And they have the Holy Spirit and we have the Holy Spirit and they're submitting to the book that God wrote and we're submitting to the book that God wrote and they're helping us understand the book that God wrote. That's what John is modeling and doing. And thirdly, um, he says that the Holy Spirit is in you. Uh, Jesus says it this way, my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you'll hear someone teach and you'll go, I don't know that, that I, don't, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that, that, something in my spirit is very troubled by, that does, that's not right. Have you ever had that? Now don't immediately say, therefore they're wrong, but you've got to say, well, is this the Holy Spirit sort of giving me a little caution, a little conviction, a little warning? And so what, what the word of God is, it's the, it's the eternal. Um, what a teacher is, is they're the external. And what the Holy Spirit is, he's the internal. And so together, the Holy Spirit works through the eternal word of God, the external teacher, and the internal confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And so when, when the Bible is taught, and the Holy Spirit confirms in you, you're like, okay, all three are in agreement. They're singing in the same chorus. This is what the scriptures say. That's what the teacher is saying. And that's what the Holy Spirit is confirming. If at any point you feel the Holy Spirit in you, it's like, that's not, that's, I don't know, something's, that's not right. Well, then maybe ask the teacher and study the scriptures to see whether or not that was something you misunderstood or something that was actually false teaching. But that, that's what he's saying. So let me say this. Um, I love to teach you. The Holy Spirit wants to meet with you. He wants you to pray and pick up the scriptures and read and study. And he wants to meet with you. He wants to teach you. He wants to bring you knowledge. He wants you to know the truth. He wants to correct any lies. Right, and my hope and prayer and goal as a Bible teacher is just to cause you to love the scriptures to feel joyful in studying the scriptures, to give you an appetite for the scriptures and to compel you to get a lot of time with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, right? And, and if at the end of the day, any teacher is pointing to anyone or anything other than Jesus, then the teaching isn't quite right. Okay? And that's his next point, that real Christians have real relationships with other real Christians and that real Christians have a real anointing from the Holy Spirit and that real Christians ultimately know the real Jesus. Uh, he says it this way in 1 John 2, 25 through 25. Who is the liar? Okay. Now, this is important. He doesn't say, you know, we live in a pluralistic society with a lot of perspectives and everybody has their opinion and all opinions are equally valid. He uses this four-letter word called liar, which is a big word. You can't use it all the time, but you can't use it none of the time. And sometimes you're like, that's not true. That's a lie. And, and again, he says in 1 John 2, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As a result of that character of God, there are things that are true and things that are false. There's truth and lies. 
Okay? And he told us in John 8 that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. All he ever does is lie, and he lies from the beginning. So you need to know that, that, that there are lies, and there are lies about Jesus. Okay? Lies are bad. Lies about Jesus, really bad. And there's been more books written about Jesus than anyone who's lived in the history of the world, and they're not all telling the truth. You need to know that. So who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Again, this group of people, there's this debate, there's this controversy, and it's not over an open-handed secondary issue, it's over a closed-handed primary issue, it's not over a state border, it's over a national border, and it's all about Jesus. And here's the point, the Bible is for you, but it's not about you. The Bible is for you, but it's not about you. In the beginning, God. So who's the Bible about? It's about God. It's for you, but it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God. Jesus comes and he has this argument with the religious leaders. In John chapter five, he says, you diligently study the scriptures, thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. Yet you fail to recognize that the whole point of the scriptures is to testify about me. Jesus says, you guys went to college. You went to seminary. You got more degrees than Fahrenheit. You read the Bible every day and you don't love me. You missed the whole point. You missed the whole point of the Bible. This is like a guy who goes to 27 marriage seminars and is not nice to his wife. You missed the big idea. You read the Bible all day and you didn't love Jesus. You missed the whole point. Jesus models this after he resurrects from death. He hosts some Bible studies at the end of Luke's gospel. And it says that he opens the Psalms, the uh, prophets, and, and he opens the law, the Old Testament, and he shows how the whole Bible is about him. Here's the, here's the thing I want you to know if you, if you come to this church. The whole Bible's about Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or God. Jesus is how we understand the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals to us Jesus. Jesus is how we get to know the Father, that he is the image of the invisible God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no way to know God apart from Jesus. That's the big idea. There is no knowledge of God. There's no relationship with God. There's no understanding of God apart from Jesus. And so the whole point of the whole Bible is Jesus. And once Jesus is in focus, everything else makes sense because all of the beliefs and doctrines and convictions of the whole Bible, they're all connected to the person and work of Jesus. So if you get Jesus right, everything else tends to get right. You get Jesus wrong, everything else tends to get wrong. And they're denying that Jesus is the Christ. That's the issue. Who is Jesus? This is the Antichrist. That's demonic. That's satanic. Anything that is against Jesus, that's wrong. He who denies the Father and the Son. What he's saying is you can't just say, we all worship the same God, we just disagree about Jesus. Our God is Jesus. This is like saying, well, I reject Jesus, but I accept God the Father. That's like if I send one of my kids to you and you slap them, that's personal for me too, right? God the Father sends God the Son. And if we reject God the Son, that's a rejection of God the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whole religious systems will say, we believe in God and God is our Father. We just don't believe in Jesus. So ultimately we all worship the same God. We just disagree about Jesus. And John is saying, it doesn't work like that. It's Jesus or not, that's it. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, let me, let me unpack this. What we're talking about here is the, what we'll call the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. A little bit of theology for you. 
that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. I think it was in 451 AD, there was a Christian council called Chalcedon. And here's why it's important. We're not the first people to pick up the Bible. We're not the first generation. We're not the first language. We're not the first race. We're not the first culture to pick up the Bible. God's word is for all peoples, nations, times, and places. It's a timeless word that's always timely. It's an eternal word, so it's always in season. And when it comes to God's word, if we pick it up, there is a possibility that we could bring our cultural prejudices, our own interpretive lenses, our academic peculiarities, and as a result, we could think something that is not after God's own thoughts. So when we come to the Bible, we wanna recognize there have been people filled with the Holy Spirit who have loved Jesus across all kinds of nations and races and languages and cultures for thousands of years. And when we pick up the scriptures, we want their voice to be included in our Bible study. And if we come to the point where we say, we're the first people that have ever thought this, we're probably a cult, right? We're saying that the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed that truth for 2000 years. That does not seem to be consistent with what he's saying that we all have knowledge, the Holy Spirit and the anointing. And so the reason I bring up this church council is there was that debate in 451 AD, God's people, the leaders, they assembled. Some of them had been persecuted. Some of them had suffered mightily. uh, And they came together to answer this question. How do we explain the person of Jesus? Hugely important question. And they came up with a Chalcedonian creed that he's fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. They call it the hypostatic union. All that to say, These are like two oars on a boat. Some will say Jesus is God. Some will say Jesus is man. The Bible says that Jesus is God who became man. He's the God man. And as we row together with those two truths, we're in faithful Christianity. If you're only on one oar, you're off course. You've got the wrong Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. Some would say that he's fully God, but not fully man, that he wasn't really tempted, that he didn't really suffer, that he didn't really live a human life as we do, right? That's rowing with one arm. You forgot about the full humanity of Jesus. He's God and man. The mistake that gets made most of the time is he's, he's a man, but he's not God. His humanity, but not his divinity. I'll give you some examples um, quickly. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that he's a created being, not the creator, that he's the archangel Michael, right? That he's not God. Again, the Mormons would say that he is a created being. He's not the creator God. He's not fully, eternally, solely the only God. In various cultural phenomena, you'll see like the Da Vinci Code, that Jesus was just a man. He was not God. Um, Liberal Christianity will say that Jesus is a good man and a moral example, but he's not God. Other religions will say the same thing. The Baha'is will say that he's He's a manifestation of God, he's a prophet, but he's inferior to Muhammad and Buhala. Buddhism will say that he's not God, but he's an enlightened man like Buddha. Christian science founder Mary Baker Eddy says Jesus Christ is not God. Hinduism says there's many views and many gods, but Jesus is certainly not the only God. Uh, And he's just a wise man like Krishna. Islam would say he's a mere man and he's a prophet and he's inferior to Muhammad. So most of the time the error is Jesus was a good man. He's not the God man. He's a great example, but he's not truly our creator. That is denial that Jesus is the Christ. You get that? So here's my question to you. Who's your Jesus? Who's your Jesus? You could say, well, he was a good man. Is he the God man? 
Well, he set a great example. He's the creator of heaven and earth and the only savior, right? That we row together, fully God, fully man, God become a man, not a man become God. That's Mormonism. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was a man who became God and we are men who can become gods. That's not what we're teaching. We're teaching that God became a man. And the whole debate here is not over, should we speak in tongues? What translation of the Bible should we use? What kind of music should we have? How long should our service be? Um, How should we educate our children? Those things are all important, but this was the bullseye of Christianity, right? Who's Jesus? And there were some who were part of the church, said they were Christians, maybe they were professors, maybe they were pastors, maybe they were leaders, and they decided we got secret insight from God that he's never told anyone, we're God's special chosen kids, we're the gurus, we have come to the now enlightened, evolved, progressive understanding that Jesus isn't the Christ. That he's not fully, totally, completely, eternally, solely God. And so what they have now is a different Jesus. And when you have a different Jesus, you have a different God. And when you have a different God, you have a different religion. Now you're a cult, okay? So we wanna be very careful. This is very careful. You don't wanna have a big bucket that is cult and throw everybody in it. You also don't wanna have a big bucket that says cult and put a lid on it and nobody goes in it. You, You need patience, prayer, real research, relationships, caution. And we're not to be making these decisions all the time about all kinds of people, but we need to be discerning so that when somebody says, will you come to my Bible study? Well, what do you guys think about Jesus? You wanna visit my church? What do you guys think about Jesus? You wanna read this book? Well, what's this person think about Jesus? Well, how about if we pray together? Well, first of all, let's talk about Jesus and who we're praying through and to, right? And so if you wanna focus on anything, and if we're gonna focus on anything, I need you to know it's gonna be Jesus. Okay, it's gonna be Jesus and the real Jesus. And there's a lot of counterfeit fake Jesus. And and it's always popular because everybody's trying to look for a way to take the name of Jesus and then to utilize it for whatever social agenda, political agenda, moral agenda they have to take the real Jesus, create a counterfeit Jesus, use the name of Jesus. And in so doing, they're not worshiping Jesus, they're counterfeiting Jesus and they're leading Christians astray. That's what he's talking about. So what's the answer? In conclusion, real perseverance. First John uh, chapter um, two, actually pick up the next slide and we'll read them in succession. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. That's the key. Some of you, you're fearful. You're like, how do I get the real Jesus, not the wrong Jesus? How do I stay with God's people, not follow false teaching? How do I stay connected to the real God and not get led astray by some crazy teaching or false understanding or new trend? Here it is, abide. Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit, fruit that will last. The abiding here is the concept of relationship. It's time together, right? How many of you are married? and you just need some time to sit down with your spouse. Otherwise, it's just not good, right? You're just not getting time together. Abiding is really investing in nurturing the relationship with the living Jesus. It's time. It's turning off your phone. It's turning off your TV. It's turning off your computer and getting time with Jesus, undistracted. 
You could do this in your car on the way to work. You could do this at home in a devotional quiet time. This is spending time in the scriptures, listening. Okay, God, talk to me. You've anointed me. You've given me the Holy Spirit. If there's some stuff you want to talk to me about, let me read the scriptures. And God, this is my time to meet with you and to abide in you and to work on our relationship. And I want to hear from you. So you're going to talk to me through your word. When we abide with God, it's also in prayer. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to talk to you about some things. Here's questions I have. Here's things I'm grateful for. Here's things I'm struggling with. Here's things I'm confused by. Here's things I'm scared of. I want to talk to you about these things in the context of our relationship. And abiding with him is personal, and it's also in the context of other relationships. It's getting together with God's people for Bible study. Hey, what's the Lord teaching you, and how can we encourage one another? Hey, how can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? Um, And it's doing life together with Jesus at the center of the relational network and circle so that we're all together walking with him. I get a lot of time with my kids and I get a lot of time with my wife. And as a result, those relationships are life-giving and they're healthy and they're nurtured. And there are times when I get distracted or there's times that I'm home with my family, but I'm emotionally just kind of gone, I'm, I'm distracted. There's other things on my mind. My phone is blown up. My responsibilities are overwhelming. And when I don't abide well, I tend to see a drift in my relationship with my wife and kids. And when I make it a priority and I focus and I'm not just carving out time, but I'm carving out emotional energy and space, that's when we start to experience that abiding. We do life together. The relationship flourishes. The life between us, it it creates joy. It creates harmony. It creates peace. When he uses the language of abiding, here's just what I want you to know. You need time with the Lord. It's an honor to teach you, but you need time with the Lord. It's a great joy to open God's word. And I I thank you for that honor. But you need time with the Lord. And some of you need time with the Lord's people. Somebody to talk to, somebody to pray with, somebody to spend time with. That's what abiding is. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to close our time in prayer. We're going to collect our tithes and offerings and visitor cards. And we're going to get a little time to abide. Okay, if you don't want to run off, this would be a great application. We're going to blow up the bouncy houses. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to say for a little while, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to hang out and spend time together as God's people. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to teach today. Thank you for the great message of 1 John, real versus counterfeit Christianity. May we use this, Lord, not to judge others all the time, but to judge ourselves all the time. To ask, where is my heart? How is my relationship? Am I abiding? Am I continuing to walk with Jesus or am I walking away from Jesus? Is my Bible open or is it closed? Is my heart open or is it closed? And Lord, I thank you that we have brothers and sisters from the history of the world, that we have brothers and sisters from all the nations and races and classes and cultures and languages of the world. And I thank you that your family is a big, global, glorious family. And I thank you, Lord God, that when it comes to the essentials, the truth is we agree. And on the secondary issues, we have distinctions, but not divisions. Help us to be clear, Lord God, about the things that we believe, not just so that we can win arguments, but that we can win people to Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.